What's up, hardcore humans? Welcome to another episode of the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Today, we are talking with a fantastic and inspiring husband-wife team, Rick Allen and Lauren Monroe. Now, many of you know Rick as the drummer for the legendary rock band Def Leppard. Rick is also a visual artist. Check out his website, rickallen.com, for his upcoming showcases in collaboration with the Wentworth Gallery. And Lauren is a spiritual healer as well as an artist and musician. You can check out her new album, Under the Wolf Moon, at laurenmonroe.com. And together they have formed the Raven Drum Foundation, a nonprofit that helps people heal through a variety of methods, including drumming. Within the Raven Drum Foundation, Rick and Lauren have launched Project Resiliency, which uses holistic healing approaches to help a range of populations, including mothers and children who have suffered domestic violence, cancer patients, and wounded soldiers who struggle with PTSD. Now, for those of you who are not aware, Rick joined Def Leppard in the late 1970s when he was just 15 years old. They then went on to huge success with their 1981 album, High and Dry, with my favorite Def Leppard song of all time, Bringing on the Heartbreak. And then they had even more success with their classic 1983 album, Pyromania, with classic songs such as Photograph and Rock of Ages. Def Leppard's infectious blend of classic rock and heavy metal put them on top of the world. There was absolutely no stopping them. And then, unfortunately, tragedy struck. In December of 1984, Rick was in a car accident that ultimately resulted in the amputation of his right arm. This was a devastating shock to the rock community. As a human being, I felt for Rick. As a fan, I couldn't help but wonder if I would ever hear new Def Leppard music again. But then in 1986, what seemed like a miracle occurred. Def Leppard played the Monsters of Rock Festival held at Castle Donington in England. How could this be? Well, Rick's friend, Peter Hartley, created electronic pedals so that rather than playing the drums the more conventional way, with two hands and one foot, Rick could play with two feet and one hand. As soon as Rick was out of the hospital, he tried Hartley's creation, and in 1987, Def Leppard, with Rick on drums, released Hysteria, an album that went on to sell over 20 million records worldwide. The album included hits such as Animal, Love Bites, and the monster stadium rock anthem Pour Some Sugar On Me. Def Leppard was back and stronger than ever. They have since gone on to be one of rock's most enduring and productive bands, releasing albums and playing shows for the past 30-plus years. In 2019, Def Leppard was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now, with hardcore humanism therapy and coaching, we want you to apply the principles of humanistic psychology to your life so that you can find your purpose, work hard to achieve it, and build a community around you who will support your most authentic and purpose-driven life. And I can't think of many stories that exemplify these objectives as much as Rick's. And now Rick has taken his personal experience and combined it with Lauren's experience in healing and the arts to form the Raven Drum Foundation and Project Resiliency. And one of the concepts that Lauren talks about is what she calls aggressive vulnerability. This is the idea that vulnerability is not a weakness, it is a strength. When we can embrace vulnerability, we not only can build ourselves as creative and innovative people, but also we can develop our empathic capacity to help others. So let's hear what Rick and Lauren have to say. So Rick and Lauren, welcome to the Hardcore Humanism podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to have both of you guys here because as we talked about beforehand, what you are doing is what we want people to gain from listening to the podcast. So I'm so excited to share your guys' stories individually and collectively, how you guys uh, came together and what you guys are doing. 
So let's, Rick, let's just start right from the beginning. You talked about having certain issues that came up even before the car accident. And let's talk about those. And then let's talk about the car accident and, you know, how that left you emotionally, physically. Well, you know, life at home wasn't necessarily uh, the easiest. Um, I had a lot of uh, challenges uh, uh, growing up, you know, quite a bit of uh, conflict in, in, in the household. Not always, but uh, enough to where I think it was, uh, it was traumatic. You know, I remember I would, uh, I would retreat to my best friend's house because, you know, it was, a, it was a great way for me to just get out of the way and maintain my sanity. And then, of course, you know, uh, the accident itself I, I think just really amplified uh, everything that I was going through as a, as a as a kid, and you know I was I was young I was young when I had that accident, and it it, it totally devastated me. I, I really I didn't particularly want to carry on. There was no reason to. I felt so self conscious and just defeated at that particular moment in time, but then. I got so many thousands and thousands of letters coming in from all over the world uh, from people, you know, wishing me well and, and, and hoping for, you know, my recovery. And my family were just, they, they were incredible. And, you know, the guys, you know, sort of giving me time to, to find myself. And I think the combination of all those things. And, and another person that was very instrumental was uh, Matt Lang, our producer. He was very supportive of, uh, of me and whatever my decision was, whether I wanted to carry on or not. But I think somewhere in the mix, I really discovered the power of the human spirit. And, and that was the thing that really elevated me and, and gave me a reason to, uh, uh, to go on. Now, how did you even have the idea, though, I mean, it's, it's as far as I know, and I, I, I grew up as a Def Leppard fan, so I remember this happening, you know, in, in real time to an extent. I had never heard of anyone doing what you did. You know, just, just how did you, you and yourself individually and collectively as a band even come up with the idea to continue playing? Because, again, it's not like that's what, that's what makes it so so magnificent in terms of what you did and so impressive is that there, it's not like, as far as I know, there's a history of people doing that. Had, had anyone, as far as you know, ever continued on as a professional drummer in that circumstance? At that moment in time, I didn't know of anyone. And uh, I had this myth, this story about, you know, I couldn't consult with the book of one-armed drummers because it didn't exist. And I remember one fan actually put a book together that was the one, the book of one arm drummers. And it was all me. <laughs> it was, it was really, it was really, it was really quite funny. But uh, a guy called Pete Hartley, a very good friend of mine, sadly, he's not with us anymore. Um, he visited me in hospital and he was just an electronics genius. He saw that I had this piece of foam at the bottom of the bed because I broke my right arm really badly as well to kind of push myself up. And my brother, Robert Allen, he, uh, he brought my stereo system into my hospital room and brought, I just said, bring all the music that inspired me, you know, growing up. So I started listening to all that music again. 
and realized that I could play all these, these basic rhythms with my feet on this piece of foam. Anyway, Pete Hartley comes to visit me. He sees what I'm doing with my feet. And he said, I can build you pedals. We can have you playing again. And, um, you know, I was supposed to be in the hospital for, for months and months. I ended up getting out of there within a month. And the f- my, my brother came and picked me up from the hospital. And I, the world felt so huge. It was like I was so afraid to be out there. I felt so overwhelmed. Um, we drove straight to uh, Pete Hartley's shop where he had the drum kit set up with the pedals. And I think I must have played for about five minutes. And I was completely exhausted. But what I went away with was I was inspired. And I knew that I could actually do this again. And, and that, was, that was really the beginning of what I do now. Um, it hasn't really changed that much um, other than, you know, refinements and uh, new equipment that's come along. But, but the mechanics of the thing is basically the same. You know, it's, uh, you know I, I use my left foot in place of my left arm. And, um, you know, and that's, that's how I do it. And, I, and as I said before, you know, the guys, they just, they just really gave me the time to be around the studio and just have this drum kit, this electronic drum kit, and just be able to experiment and just, just play and just be around, just be around the music. And, and yeah, that, 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 that simple thing. Just, just really, really got me into a place where I knew that I could do this. I, I was, I was convinced. And, and you know what I'm hearing, and, and Lauren, I want to use this as a way of, of transitioning just into your uh, background. I, I don't know if you guys ever experienced it as much, but but heavy metal, you know, punk, certain forms of rock, hip hop, they all get such a bad reputation like every like everything they're doing is is you know it's salacious or it's violent or or it's 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 demon worship and and here is this this you know whether you guys call yourself a rock band a metal band some kind of combination whatever it is and just that basic compassion that basic kind of like hey we're just going to give you time to heal and to figure this out is is very impressive to me because it's so simple but it's everything when somebody is struggling it certainly, yeah. It's, I mean, it, it, it certainly, it certainly is. I, I think sometimes we, we, that's all we need. It's just a bit of time, just to figure it out for ourselves, and it unfolds. You know, it, it's, um, you know, like I say, I, I, I didn't particularly want to play drums anymore. I, w- I wanted to just jump in here and just remind you too. This, I, I think there's a story about. Um, of something a doctor said to him in the hospital um, that really, I think it accentuates his personality and his um, uniqueness in the situation to take something and to you know, take it head on and to succeed, even though you were feeling like overwhelmed and didn't think you could drum anymore at that point. Share the story about what the doctor said and how you left the hospital. That's right. There was this, uh, there was this junior doctor and uh, he used to visit and I don't know whether it was part of his training to, to sort of downplay and, and not build up my hopes too much. But uh, he said, uh, you know, you're probably never going to wave again and you're probably never going to play drums again. And I went back into that place of depression and then fast forward to me being an outpatient and I remember visiting the hospital and I saw this doctor walking down the corridor 
And the first thing I did was wave down it. Um, so, uh, so the drumming wasn't far behind, you know, it, it was just a matter of time. And I just needed that time just to really just find myself and, uh, and figure out what I could do and, and, and not dwell on what I couldn't do. I want to, I want to talk about that compassion because from my understanding of your work in the healing arts, compassion is the key. And, and it, did I, did I get that right in terms of understanding your work? Absolutely. I think the ability to uh, shift your consciousness and to be in a place of uh, more empathy uh, and compassion is, is, is where we need to go. And I think in a place of healing, the most difficult thing is to have that compassion toward yourself and to give yourself that time. So what Rick says, you know, uh, reflecting back, that ability to have the space from his coworkers, to have advocates around him to give them that space to really acknowledge himself at where he was and then uh, encourage him. It's really important for anyone on the healing journey. So compassion for yourself is, is big. And so let's talk about, Rick, just kind of what you struggled with afterwards. Because on a, and, and again, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but on a professional level, I mean, this has just been a home run. I mean, you guys were actually more successful after the accident, you know, in terms of if, if that sort of thing matters to you, you know, than you were before. So professionally, this is this has been a fan. Everybody has witnessed it as being this this wonderful success. Emotionally, what were you struggling with afterwards as you continued to have that professional success? Just being self conscious, being. Uh afraid of uh of failing you know just uh just feeling this huge weight and also uh self-medication i think that was a that was a a a huge one um you know remember we were making a record in in holland not exactly the ideal place to be you know if you're trying to uh, heal so there were there were there were many things that uh that, that i felt were hurting me at the time but honestly, uh, Mutt Lang—he—he was—he was—he was a huge uh, fan of me, and, and he really—he really lifted me up at every opportunity that he could. Again, it was—it was just be, having that time to just explore um, all the fantastic things that I could do. I think an important thing to say is that um, that weight lifted when I stopped comparing myself to how I used to be and when I stopped comparing myself to others and I realized how unique it was for me to be playing drums the way that I was playing drums. And, and that in itself, it just took the weight off my shoulders and allowed me to just celebrate, you know, what I was achieving, what I was in process of achieving at that time. Now, Lauren, let me ask you about that because my assumption is that through your work and then the two of you being together, that based on what you guys have told me beforehand, that your helping Rick center in that compassionate place has been a part of your relationship and you know, obviously is something that you do in your work. And so one of the things I'm curious about is what Rick just described is something that I, I see all the time, you know, you know, people with whom I work. And Once you are able to be in your own space, 
it, it and, and again, have that compassion for yourself, the whole world changes. Getting people there is very difficult. And I'm kind of curious, just from your perspective, like how as individuals or as a couple, do you get into that space? Because that is just, that's not easy. I mean, the way you're describing it, it was great that it happened, but I mean, that's a, that's a lifetime journey for most people. It is. And it's a, it's a practice. You know, um, when I first met Rick, he was, he wasn't aware he had post-traumatic stress. He, he, it wasn't defined for him. And so once, you know, we had this conversation and we were able to look at the different ways that he can um, help treat it and recognize it. And uh, it really helped in the process. But I think the mindfulness approach is the, the biggest approach that I find success with because we have to start being mindful of how we feel. And, and also a gateway to healing is through the body. So the mind-body connection is, is a doorway, I feel, that, uh, to uh, lead people into a place to embrace what they're feeling to accept what they're feeling and then develop an awareness around their feelings and how it interacts with their body and how they behave and the choices that they make. Um, and then you bring art and music into the picture and you're giving them a, a way to delve into their subconscious mind uh, to be able to be creative with it and also use it as an outlet to bring their feelings right in front of them to see and then share in a safe way too. So that's what all we we did together is we started really exploring these things together and how we make art together and how we sh- we help other people through the journey through our foundation we do a lot of drum work and healing work and as we started sharing we start to heal too it's it's not just a one way street it really goes both ways i love how lauren describes how vulnerability is is one of your uh, superpowers mm. uh, can you explain that a little bit well, I, I, this, this idea of vulnerability being weak is in our society. It's in our culture, and it's really wrong. I don't, I don't agree with it, and I feel like there's a lot of people now coming to that place of seeing how the more vulnerable you are in the healing journey, the more success you're going to have. And getting to that place is, is like working a muscle and being able to uh, get stronger at it. But um, that, that vulnerability is a place that makes you a great artist. It makes you a great thinker. It makes you a great uh, person in a relationship. And it makes you a great leader. So having that uh, training is really important. Yeah, and it's, it's, what you're saying is, is, as far as I'm concerned, is right on. It's exactly wrong the way that we train people. We train people to be, quote, unquote, tough you know, to keep calm and carry on, which is if, if you're in a war situation at a given moment and you, you obviously there's certain, you, you may not be able to explore all your vulnerability in certain really, really high stress situations. But as far as how you take that throughout your life, being able to be vulnerable means open. Vulnerable means being able to, you know, to connect with something. People use that, like you said, they use it as a, a negative, like vulnerability means you could be hurt. It's like, you can be hurt, but that's only one of the things that can happen because there's like 10 other things that you can have happen that are good. That's true. That's true. Uh, Creating safe, safe spaces, safe places, not being afraid to make mistakes uh, because you're in a safe place. You know, you're not going to be judged. You know, I could be sitting playing drums, trying new things and and knowing that, you know, people are just going to, you know, the people, the people that I surround myself with, the people that lift me up, that they support they support that. They hear something that may be a little off, 
But you know what? Tomorrow it won't be because I'm given that opportunity, that space to where I can, I can grow. About being in a place of war that I just want to circle back to because um, we work with veterans and uh, wounded warriors. And something we talk to them about is vulnerability, which is really interesting because their whole training just does not, it doesn't, it's, it doesn't align itself with vulnerability. But the thing that's really important that when you're in a vulnerable place, you're in a place of openness, you receive information from different places in your brain. And when you're in combat even, and you're in a place of, you're able to be in a place of that vulnerable state, that open state, you can make decisions, even in war that are way different than if you're reactionary. So developing that part of vulnerability in your brain and having that body-mind connection is really important in in other realms too, even in a a warrior mindset, uh, which we have to be sometimes when we're healing. We have to be aggressively vulnerable, which is, there, it's a paradox to be vulnerable, but also to be active in our vulnerability and guiding it. But let's talk about that because I don't, I don't hear that as a paradox. I feel like when you said that, I'm like, I, in my mind, I was like, exactly. But I, I hear you in the sense that most people think that's a paradox. Could you, yeah. could you expound on that a little bit? Because I agree with that, but most people would not buy into that. So just to kind of explain what that means to be aggressively vulnerable. Aggressive vulnerability. I see a book. I think you guys have to write it. <laughs> uh, well, it's in a place of mindfulness where you're directing it all the time. You uh, being in a place where you have this awareness. Like uh, we're in a situation of conflict. We want to close. We want to armor. But instead, we're aggressively vulnerable. We're able to maintain this open space and, and be in charge of our own protection, but still be open at the same time. And I think that's where mindfulness practice plays a big uh, part in healing and also helping us direct our brain. I'm like, I'm a big proponent of neuroscience and I'm really excited about what neuroscience is doing right now and giving us all this information about how our brain works as being uh, compassionate beings, as how we heal, how we can guide our, um, our neuropathways into healing trauma uh, and mindfulness plays a big part in that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, let me just ask, because there's a lot of different ways to get to mindfulness. And I think that meditation is one, creativity is one. Do you guys have regular practices that are designed specifically to evoke mindfulness or to practice mindfulness? I think where Art I, and music. Art and music. I think where we live as well, uh, one of the reasons we, we love uh, the Central Coast is the, the nature. Uh, this, this coastline is, is just stunning. And I heard Lauren talking about dominant frequency. And that's the one thing about, you know, you walk outside here and you're in amongst the, the, the oaks, uh, you're in amongst the mountains, the nature, and that dominant frequency, it's, I think you talked about bioentrainment. Yeah, bioentrainment is, uh, is, is a way where our energy feels entrain or in our consciousness in general, even our brains, uh, and train with something that is dominant. And when you're in nature, the ocean is that dominant frequency, the trees, the sky, and we begin to settle down. Our respiration changes, our, you know, the way we breathe, the way we feel starts to shift. And I think that's one way that we use mindfulness. But uh, for me, I've been doing this for so long that mindfulness is my state. And so it's, it's in the ordinary things when you start to bring mindfulness into washing the dishes 
into, you know, putting your keys in your car ignition as you drive those places where you're checked out. That's where you start to train yourself into being right there, feeling your feet on the earth, walking to the subway in the morning, the things we just go on automatic pilot. We bring mindfulness to those places and it really can change our state. So what happens in a, like, like, so for example, as you're describing that, I, I don't, you know, quite frankly, if I were being honest, I don't consider myself a particularly mindful person. So when you're describing this, I get it intellectually, but I'm kind of curious, like, okay, so what happens as you're paying attention? Like I'm like, I'm aware right now that my feet are on the ground. I can feel where there's tensions, but I guess the question that I would have for you is, some people would think that by by focusing on those that I'm not focusing on you guys as much. How do you how do you balance that? Like in a situation like this, should I be focused on my conversation with you? Should I be focused on my own body? Like what what would what would mindfulness dictate at a time like this? You're talking about chewing gum and walking at the same time, right? So so basically it's a practice to sit for that five, 10 minutes and practice these things, but then they become second nature. So while you're talking to me, you'll also be in this mindfulness state. And when you're in mindfulness place for an interview or whatever you're doing that requires your mind to be sharp, you're able to be more in the moment and not in the past or in the future. And when you're in the moment, you're able to access more of what your soul wants to say, what your mind wants to do. And I think it's a, it's a win situation, but the practice uh, is first with yourself and then it integrates into everything you do and it becomes just a habit. Let me ask and Rick for you, because one of the things that takes people out of mindfulness is fear of what they're going to discover when they're, when they're aware. And you're talking about two very, very painful things. You're talking about post-traumatic stress and you're talking about traumatic brain injury. Um, how how have you been able to, through mindfulness, become aware of those symptoms? And how has the mindfulness and the compassion that's associated with that helped you in terms of whether it's management or recovery, You know, how, however you conceptualize it? Uh, that's a good question. Part of my practice while I'm going through uh, my neurofeedback sessions is mindfulness uh, because you know, I can see there's a reference on the screen, uh, the different levels that I see on the screen. You know, there's three different graphs. And it's interesting, when I look at the graphs, I can influence the graphs in the right direction. When I'm just looking at the action on the screen, and I'm not, my mind isn't necessarily aware of it, sometimes they get a bit unruly. But as soon as my brain sees my brain, influencing those levels and it's just something as simple as start breathing deeper and just start to start to relax and then i start to see the correlation between my my state of mind and the levels that i start to see which are really accessing the areas of my brain that have been traumatized so I'm actually, I'm actually use, starting to use those areas of my brain, which in turn brings in more oxygen, brings in more blood, 
And I'm starting to see those levels. I mean, it's, it's pretty intense. I've, I, I figured out the other day, I've probably done about more than 40 odd sessions, you know, in more recent months. But I'm starting to see those levels going in the, in the right direction. Again, it's, it's, it's part of that mindful uh, practice while I'm actually doing the neurofeedback. Now, Laura, let me ask you something because I, I, I'm kind of curious if you would agree with this. Because one of the things that I do with the people with whom I work, let's say that somebody has panic, right? I mean, all, all, a lot of the anxieties work very in a very similar fashion. But let's just say as an example, people have panic. And one of the things that I say to them is that a lot of this is going to be about learning how to be aware of, be okay with, and, and ultimately tolerate the distress long enough so that it can, it can pass. Like you can watch it pass. And then when you know that it can, it makes it that much easier to engage in that whole process. One of the things that I will talk to people about is sometimes it can help training yourself to tolerate distress in other circumstances. So for example, exercise is something that people who struggle with panic don't necessarily fear. But from my perspective, learning how to tolerate the distress of exercise can then give you a little bit more experience and confidence of handling the distress when you, it's almost like training for a marathon in some way. Does that make sense to you? And as, as a, as a concept, or does it feel like these are just like two totally separate things? No, they make sense uh, to me. And we've actually, when we work with warriors and we do retreats, one of the things that we we've done with them in the past is we teach them emotional training techniques for stress uh, when they start to feel onset of um, a symptom, say anxiety or panic, uh, emotional freedom technique, the meridian tappings is one of the things that we showed them uh, in, in relation to breathing as well. And then what we did was we did this uh, in our groups. Uh, we did it with drumming and other types of modalities. But then we took them up to ro- a ropes course and we had them go up. How high? No, like 30, 35, 40 feet. Yeah. And as they're climbing, even though some of these guys have done like very impressive feats in the military because they have traumatic brain injury now, post-traumatic stress, climbing up there, they start to feel the effects of what would happen when a symptom came up with their post-traumatic stress. So as they do that, we're putting them in that same place. Their body's reacting the same, but they're not in a place of danger. So then they would use the techniques to help them get up the pole. So it's, again, the body has a memory. So if you're training your body in, in the gym, when your heart rate is up and all these things are the same as having a, a panic attack, so if your mind is in a different place, you'll be able to go, oh, my heart is doing this. This is a familiar thing. I know how to work with this. You know? it, now, now on, that, on that point, so Rick, I'm kind of curious then. I mean, there are, are few things. I mean, there's obviously, there's always something, but there's few things that combine multiple stresses as uh, then then drumming in a in a rock band in front of thousands of people i mean you're talking about the the number of, of of stimuli that are coming into you and the amount of things both internally and externally that you have to deal with are too many to count i guess the question i have for you is that do you feel like that all the years that you had done it beforehand helped you in terms of understanding Let's start with that first question. Helped you in terms of like knowing what you had to do in this situation. 
we're not built for what you do professionally. You know, having all that, all that input. And I'm kind of curious to see is that when you came to starting to, to work on healing, did you draw confidence from that and sort of be like, Hey, I've, I, I've done this before to some degree. Um, yes, I, I, I have done this before and, and, and that experience helped me, but it doesn't, it doesn't take away the fact that sometimes my nervous system is so amped before a, a show. It's, it's, it's almost like the thought of doing the show is worse than when I actually count the band in and I'm a few bars in. As soon as I get a few bars in, that total anxiety dissipates. And in, in st- instead of this worry or, you know, this feeling of being, being you know, nervous or whatever, once that, once that travels uh, down to my heart, then I just find myself in the moment. And, and the show actually feels as though it only lasts about half an hour because the, the times that I do come up for air, as it were, uh, during the show, and, and I look around at the audience, I go, whoa, I'm going back in, <laughs> you know? And then I just get back into my center, get back into, into, into my heart, and then I'm right back in the moment. He prepares himself for this place. It's not like he can walk. He, there's a lot of preparation that he does. That's what I was going to ask because the, the, the follow-up question that I was going to have is that each time now that you perform, again, I think one of the benefits that a lot of people who struggle with, with TBI or PTSD have is that they can control their environment to minimize the, the number of, of really like, you know, kind of harsh and intense stimuli. As much as, you know, I'm a big fan of your music. So when I say harsh and intense, I mean, like, I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, like, that's what I love about it. But on a practical level, the whole thing is, you know, is super intense. And so I guess one of the things I'm kind of wondering about is that have, what do you do to practice? Like, like Lauren's saying, and has there ever been a time where you kind of felt it getting away from you? And then all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, like, well, what do I do now? grounding exercises before actually breathing uh way way prior to the show and and just just keeping my 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 whole nervous system as calm as possible uh spending time you know on the bus listening to music um with as little you know stimuli as possible yeah or 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 eating you know eating uh really healthy food and again you know grounding exercises when I'm standing, when I'm actually standing on the stage behind the drums before I actually play, uh, feel my feet on the floor and then, and then do a whole visualization where, you know, the floor being connected to the earth. And then, you know, it's almost like uh, visualizing roots going, you know, out of my feet and connecting with the earth and going into the earth. And that, that, that really, that really helps me uh, tremendously. And then quite honestly, giving the whole thing up to a higher power and just saying, you know what, do with me what you will, you know, uh, I'm here. And just acknowledging that, that, that this experience is for the good of everybody, everybody in the audience. And that sort of that ripple effect that goes out into everybody, whether that's our crew, whether that's the rest of the guys in the band, everybody, everybody that is in the vicinity and further 
benefit from from this experience. That's my that's my gift. <laughs> you know, it's fun, it's fantastic, really. You know, to to realize that gift. I want to transition into that because uh, I want to I want to talk about the difference in how mindfulness is understood through music versus visual art. And you, you've described a lot of what you do from a music perspective. And I, that, I, I feel like I have, a, I have a really good sense of that. Is it different in terms of how you approach your art? And Lord, I, I'd love to hear your perspective just in terms of how you work with people. Like, is, is, is there a difference in terms of how you approach mindfulness in those two different things or what people should expect in those two mediums? Some, sometimes I have to go into what I call healthy retreat uh, because I, I, you know, I'm maybe spinning out and I can't settle myself to be in the right place to create art. So I'll go have a walk outside. I'll go spend time with the dog. You know, I'll, I'll just take a break. And then when I gather myself, then I can come back in and, uh, just be in the right place, be in the right space. And then I can create art. Um, it, it is different with the music because I'm kind of forced to get myself in the right place, in the right headspace, in the right physical state. Where, whereas the, the, the art, you know, sometimes I'm working on my own, um, but I'm, I'm, just, I'm just not in the right place to, to, to do it. Um, but at least I have the awareness. And then I can, I can go and do something about it and then come back in with a renewed sense of, okay, you know, here we go. I can do this now. Lord, do you, when you work with people, do you, I don't know, is there anything that you do different therapeutically with visual art versus music? Well, when I work with people, I work with energy as more of an energy psychology, energy, a spiritual psychology approach to energy medicine. And so the art and the music, if I suggest for them to do it, it's both as a, um, an extension of being able to see what's inside and looking at it on the outside. So it's not a um, result-orientated process. It's about for doing art for the sake of art, for the sake of expression. And so, again, it brings you back to that being in the moment and, and, and being able to be in a place of silence and listening. The art of listening is such an important thing, especially when we have so much going on in our minds. We have the committee, we call, you know, the committee says a lot all the time. And who is that committee identifying that committee uh, and what voices do we hear? Not always are our own voice. It's the voice of our parents. It's, it's the voice of that teacher who criticized us in third grade that's still there and says you're not good enough. And all of these things. And when we identify what voices are there in the moment and then we get to that small little voice that voice that's our intuition, that's really us, you know, the voice uh, that was us when, before we got wounded. And once we identify that, that voice comes out and that's the catalyst of the healing. And uh, I, I like to, I bring people to that voice and teach them how to listen. So one of the things that I really like about what you're describing is, and this is a big part for me of at least the way I understand more humanistic approaches to psychology is that the goal is really to push away all of the weeds that get in the way of that, you know, what you're describing as kind of like a pre-trauma self, 
know, before there were expectations, before people got hurt in some ways or were told they were no good or shame or whatever gets in, in people's way. And just that idea of all of these things are just different expressions of that. But that's that's the key, it seems like, from what you're saying, is getting to that energy, if you will. From, our, from my experience, it is. It's that, it's, that, it's that being with self. It's that being with the part of um, yourself that knows everything. Uh, the part that can help you heal the most is you, is this, this authentic self that has this connection with your higher self. Um, and we're so disconnected from that at an early age. I was very lucky that I didn't have this disconnection. I just, for some reason, I kept it. I was, I, I've been wounded very much. And, uh, but, but I've always had this voice that was able to, to, I could go back to. And, um, I, I think it's such a value and some people don't even recognize it. They've never heard it because the wounds same came so early on in infancy. Uh, you know, the whole idea of transgenerational wounding as well happening uh, through the family. We don't even realize we're carrying this wound and that we're behaving in ways that if we knew it was there and we were able to acknowledge it and hand it back to the people it came from, it doesn't belong in my system. I, I, I understand it now and now it's time I can let it go. And sometimes just that acknowledgement for some people to see it in, in the timeline and how they've carried it can help them be one of those people to end it with their generation so they don't pass it on to their children. So again, it's about awareness. It's about finding your inner voice and really listening, being able to hear it for the first time. And art and music and mindfulness and um, meditation, all these things, you know, uh, it, it can't be one thing. Sometimes it's a bunch of things, you know, uh, it's many things. Uh, not every formula is going to work for every person. Yeah, you know, and that's that's one of the things that I'll, I'll definitely say to people is that it's really not it's not really important how you get there. I think that one of the things that happens in a lot of more conventional healing processes is that it's like, well, what's important is the structure of the, you know, like the, the external structure of the therapy, you know, so you have to do cognitive behavioral therapy, you have to do psychodynamic therapy, do this kind of thing. And, and I, I, I think it's great if people have an approach and they have certain techniques that, that work and and there's that you know I, I respect all of that, but at the end of the day, we we have no idea how someone is going to connect with that part of themselves. You know, even in like Rick and like listening to your description, it's like how you know how did you go from that situation where you're like I don't want to do any of this anymore to like you know something I'm going to get there. It's like we we don't know a hundred percent, but. You got there. And that's what's that's what's important, I think, as as sort of healers and artists and, and maybe just people in general, just being open to the fact that there's a di- bunch of different ways that people can get there. But it, it's our job to try to get there ourselves and to try to help others get there because that that looks like a pretty cool world, you know, one in which that that's our mission, you know, from my perspective. For, yeah. for, for me, there was definitely a higher power uh, component, you know, the, the idea that I I, I didn't have to do it all myself and that, that there was a way that I could, I could ask for help. Even, even if I couldn't necessarily see that uh, in say a person, uh, there, there was a way that I could tap into that and, uh, and, 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 and get the help uh, through, through prayer or, 
or mantra or meditation or breathing or or even food treating myself you know treating myself really well there's as you say there's a whole host of ways you can get there i don't think that's necessarily important as long as people do get there and it needs it needs to be kind of you know something that's comfortable for you as an individual i think going back to dominant frequency again um you know anybody that can stand in front of uh, an ocean and not feel something bigger than themselves or you know on one of those really clear nights when you look up into the night sky you know where there's not very much light pollution and 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 tell me that there isn't something bigger than you you know it it the, i think i think they're good start points you know for people pick things that are around you that are really dominant that are obviously bigger than you and i think it it's it's not too difficult to tap into a practice and i think you all can agree too um when we're going through difficulty and we go out in nature say we go to the ocean and we sit there by ourselves and we can have a moment and cry and what why is that why it's not because we're just alone it's because that energy has this mothering love frequency uh i it, it's beyond our explanation at this point but we do know that there is something bigger and we put ourselves in the arms of something bigger and mystical like that, like looking into the heavens or being around nature. There's, there's something that happens to us, you know, physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, something that opens and we connect to. And once we find that pathway, we can find it in so many different places. And so the key is, is this love energy. It's the higher power, but what it is, it's love. And we can find it everywhere. And it's not this hallmark kind of love I'm talking about. I'm talking about this enormous frequency of love that we can identify with and we don't have words for. And that's why music and art is so important because that's what is infused in, at least what we do, is this love frequency. Um, yeah. And can I tell you that that's, that's been something I've really been talking with people about. I think I just, just focus on loving and being loved, you know, don't focus on loving and then expecting something back. Don't focus on, on being loved. And then, and then we'll just, just focus on those two frequencies. And if you can do that, it, it, it's amazing how simple the world becomes because you start to just look at it. It's like, Oh, what's loving coming towards me. Let me, let me pivot towards that. You know, what can I do to be loving towards someone? And I, I, I feel like, I don't know if you guys agree, but I feel like we don't ask ourselves that question very often. You know, there's that simple thing. What can I do to love today? Whether it's, it's the work that I do, the people around me, the environment around me, and what can I do to be loved today, to be open to that? And talk about vulnerability. I mean, yeah. talk about like that, that is probably one of the most difficult things. I find that to be one of the most difficult things to really be open to being loved is, why is you know, it so? Why is it so human beings are like that? Why are we like that? Why is it so hard to be loved? I and mean, that's what we crave the most. We crave it the most. We, why? I, and, I, and I think it's a big question here. And, and, and I think it's a mission, you know, at least for us. And, and, I think our greatest joy is giving, having seen other people feel loved. And when they do, we do. Yeah. They, they, they're the times that I feel that the, the only way I can describe it is, is grace. And, and that's when you get those, those, those sort of warm tears rolling down your cheeks and you're not sad, but you're feeling, you're feeling 
just a, a compassion. Uh, Connection of yeah. something bigger and yeah. a relief sometimes, you know, you'll, it's a relief. It's interesting because you were asking like, why don't people, you know, why is it so hard to be loved? But I think one thing is we can look at the concept of mindfulness as it's played out in more contemporary psychology. And I remember when uh, mindfulness and, and, you know, particularly like Marshall Linehan started doing dialectical behavior therapy and the idea of integrating Eastern philosophies with behavioral and everybody was like, what? You know, like, like what, like, what, what is that? Like, you know, and now it's like, I doubt you could get a grant on treating anything without having a mindfulness piece. It's like, why did it take people 40, 50 years to accept this concept as being valuable? I mean, mindfulness has been around forever. And yet as a a society, somehow we judge and we shame and we, we kind of push out things that we don't understand. And that little pivot of you know, what you got to talk about that, it goes back to that vulnerability, just being open to something that's different Yeah. would I, to me, I think would change everything because then you at least have, I mean, you, you can make a decision later on that mindfulness isn't for you. There's no, nothing wrong with that, but that's different than immediately sort of being like, what about mindfulness? Like, what are you talking about? And that's, that's to me is when you're asking like, why don't we accept love or why aren't we open to love? It's because that happens so many times to people. And then, and then obviously things that are a lot worse, but that, that seems to be our, our nature to some degree. And I think Rick and I worked on a project of mine called, called under the wolf wolf moon. It's an album that I released this year. And throughout the record, we provided rhythms and very mindfully all the lyrics, everything that's in it, it puts people in a place of, self-exploration and and a place of feeling mindful. Um, Even if you don't like mindfulness, even if you don't buy into mindfulness, that's why music especially is so important about leading people to a place where they can experience themselves. Even if they don't want to be mindful when they listen or when they see a video, when they have this interaction through the arts, they're taken to that place and they can revisit it. That's how I, I feel it music is so important and art into this guiding people how to accept where we are uh, in psychology, in spirituality and how, you know, how we can be led to it more deeply. Yeah. That's, that's one of the reasons why I, I generally interview people who are artists because like a lot, you know, look, I, I love the people in my field, but a lot of time they're not people who have been on that journey necessarily. You know what I mean? They're studying that journey. They're trying to work on that journey. But when you talk to people who have been on that journey, it's, it's just so much, there's something that just connects. I think that's why music connects in such a different way, because it's like, you have to have gone through that journey in order to make music that inspires people. Like you just had to, you, it's like, it's like cook. It's like cooking something that's really, that's really, really like, you know, satisfying and flavorful. Like you can feel the love in the process and you can't get it otherwise. And, you know, that's why I appreciate both you guys coming on talking about this because what you guys are talking about right now is I want people to look a little bit behind, behind the curtain and be like, but, but there are things here that got you to this place that, that people can do. 
that can improve your life beyond just enjoying the art, beyond just enjoying the music. That's where the real value is. And so I think what, what you yeah. guys are doing is so important because you're you're taking it to that next level with your advocacy and and you know doing things like this. So I, I appreciate you know very much um, you taking the time to talk about this. No, I appreciate that. You know, sometimes language uh, falls short. Um, something experiential uh, takes over, and I think that's why. That's why people invented dance and, and poetry and music and art. And, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's experiential. You, you can't explain exactly. <laughs> I, I've been trying to uh, articulate this path for over 25 years before mindfulness was even a thing or energy medicine was even coined. And um, at the end of the day, I realized really quickly I had to give someone an experience. So, it'd be like, you know, you talk about it and you go, okay, let me play this song. You have them experience it and they go, what just happened? What? I just felt this, this, and this. I'm like, that's what I'm talking about. It's this energy transference. When I have an intention, I will, this is the experience I'm giving you and you're receiving it. Same thing with the drumming circles that we do. We teach mindfulness. We teach all these energy approaches of thinking and through music. And we don't need to define it. We just give people the experience and they'll go, what was that? I can't, what was that? I've never experienced that before. And then we can back you have the backstory of this is what we did. You can do this at home. So there you have it. Rick Allen and Lauren Monroe talking about aggressive vulnerability. This concept is so important to a fulfilling and purpose-driven life. And the reason is that if we are pushing ourselves to understand our own experience in a deep way, we are bound to discover vulnerability. And as we work to fulfill our purpose, we will come across obstacles that make us vulnerable to not feeling connected to ourselves or to our purpose. But just like Rick was able to stay connected to his purpose in music, even through a terrible and traumatic event, we need to be open to the possibility that a purpose-driven life is not always linear and may come with many hardships along the way. But if we can embrace that aggressive vulnerability, we will be more likely over time to see those hardships as opportunities and lead an authentic and fulfilling life. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Island Booman, for editing and producing this podcast, and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear in the podcast, subscribe on your favorite app, give us a rating, and write a review. And if you'd like to take the next step and make change in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program at HardcoreHumanism.com. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. See you next time.